Are you ready? I think so. Okay. Did we get a cold open? Do you think? Uh, I, don't I, don't know. Know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> hey, Liz. Hi, Chris. We are. What? What should we call this? Is this like? If it's Christmas and Christmas Eve, what is this? Election Eve? Yeah, I think so. This is like our our penultimate episode before the world ends. As far as I know, like the world ends after November 3rd. I have like no sense of what life looks like. You know what I mean? Like we just drive right off a cliff. Exactly. I mean, you know, Christmas is like opening presents and there's like you know, a warm and loving anticipation of what's to come. This is like the polar opposite, right? Yeah, it's just, it really does feel, I think the jumping off a cliff analogy is like apt. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because we just Mm -hmm. have like no idea what's on the other side of that. Like I can't plan. I have no idea what life looks like after that, you know? So just to set the stage, uh, the day we're recording this is two weeks. That's crazy to say. It's two weeks before the... November 3rd, 2020 elections. I can't believe we've arrived at this. On one hand, I'm like, you know, in 2016, when Trump got elected, I was like, how am I going to survive four years of this? Mm -hmm. And somehow we're here four years later. Mm -hmm. It feels like time has dragged by, but at the same time, I'm confronting this with dread. And the next time we talk, Hopefully, who knows with all these mail-in ballots and with pandemic elections, if we'll know who the winner is, but theoretically, we'll know if Donald Trump gets elected again, or if Joe Biden beats him and this long national nightmare is finally, one chapter of it is at an end, hopefully. Yeah. That's so crazy. I feel like as soon as... He got elected in 2016. Like the the period we're in now, everyone was like, we were all looking towards this, right? And now we are mm-hmm. here in it, which is bonkers. So I hope everyone else is doing what they can to keep their heads above water and just, you know, bracing themselves for what's to come. We know we are. And yeah, we're going to talk about it a lot today um, just to kind of get it out there and just maybe do a little commiseration, do a little bit of um, gut check. But before we get into that, just wanted to check in with you, Liz. How are you doing? What's What's been on the top of your mind lately? What you said about hoping that everybody is like doing what they need to do and taking care of themselves, like that hits really deep because this has been a tough week to like get anything done. Mm. I've had a very hard time focusing on much of anything. And I am just like obsessed with home improvement like changing all of our light fixtures painting all of our rooms like all stuff that uh you know we moved into this house almost two years ago and stuff that we just like did not we just don't have the spoons to deal with you know but like right now I am obsessed with it and I think it's because I have anxiety right like I have all this pandemic anxiety I have all this election anxiety and there's nowhere for it to go And so I think it has just latched on to like improving our house because that's something like tangible and discreet that I can control as opposed to everything else, which I have literally no control over. Right, right. right? 
So yeah, that's my life right now. Like I have so much work that I need to do, but all I can do is like look up ceiling fans Mm. from West Elm and like look up paint colors. Like it's complete nonsense. But um, I I feel so like uprooted by all of the things that are happening in terms of the pandemic and whatever. And I think like I just want to feel like settled and you know what I mean? And I think there's something about that too, like, this is like a way of like nesting and burrowing into this house. So I think there's just like many layers of psychology that's, uh, that's going on here. But um, what are you, how are you, man? Like, is your election and pandemic anxiety being directed towards something like being displaced in the way that mine is? So I don't have a home improvement thing. I don't really have a home. Uh, I wish. <laughs> um, but you know that you know, just hearing about that just sounds comforting for some reason. It just makes sense. I feel like if I did have, uh, you know, home improvement projects, I would just throw myself at that. But right now, um, mercifully and simultaneously, somehow cruelly, the World Series is on. Um, by the time this episode comes out, we'll know who won it. But you know, usually this time of year, I'm checked out because, you know, my team hasn't made it this far. But this year, the Dodgers have made it to the World Series. Again. And, well, yes, it's true that in the last four years, we've made a magical run. Yes. Um, this is our third World Series in the last four years. Which is striking. It is. Oh. It's it's remarkable. I'm not taking it for granted. It's mm-hmm. it's truly remarkable. So I'm very excited about that. Um Again, I don't want to date this episode too much because by the time it comes out, I'll be listening to it and be like, oh, you sound so hopeful back then. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But as of recording, uh, the series is knotted at Mm -hmm. 1-1. And so, yes, that's pretty much just been, it's been helpful in the sense that I I can just, like, I can just block out any kind of news or any kind of like poll watching. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like imbibing all the, baseball analysis that my baseball nerdy nerdy heart can desire you know so I'm just reveling in that Um, it's a huge time suck and I for one am just totally okay with that right now (laughs) yeah that's what's that's what's distracting me right now I welcome it despite the stress respect respect um and what's top of mind for you otherwise So what's on top of mind for me is the executive order on combating race and sex stereotyping, which if it came from any other administration, right, it's something that you'd want to look into and and see what kind of like progress we can make as a country. But of course, this was released by the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ignore this executive order as just pandering and, you know, just more of that red meat to his base that doesn't really affect me. Mm -hmm. But uh, at work, uh, we are, uh, so my work is a nonprofit NGO, um, but we are also a federal contractor in a lot of our work. Mm -hmm. And so this executive order actually affects us. Mm -hmm. And so I sit on uh, various committees at work, mm-hmm. uh, focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh-huh. Um, one of them is the, I'm part of the DEI, D- Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council at right. my workplace. Mm-hmm. And so we had to convene a meeting to discuss how we're going to be in compliance with this executive order. Mm-hmm. And mind you, 
these folks here are at the cutting edge, right? So they can see right through this executive order for what it is. But everybody was doing the whole, okay, we all know how we feel about this, but really we just need to see if we're in compliance with all the things that came out of this executive order. So they're taking the safe road here and yeah. the com- the compliance road. So I had to go back and read it. And I mean, you expect nothing less, right, uh-huh. from the Trump administration. So basically, they're shrouding this thing. Have you had a chance to read this? No, I haven't even heard of it until just now. Right, right. So basically, what this is, is that anybody that is a federal entity or a federal contractor uh-huh. that does diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism training uh-huh. has to, like make sure that they are in compliance with this executive order. Uh-huh. And basically what they're doing, boiling it down, is that they're they're basically saying that these anti-racism trainings are divisive. Okay, this I have this I had heard. Yeah. That the that they're um divisive and that they need to basically stop giving these trainings mm-hmm. if they fall under the definition of quote unquote divisive. Mm-hmm. And so I had a chance to kind of skim through this executive order. And what's nauseating about it is that, first of all, it frames itself around like this long history of racial progress in this country. It even cites Gross. like the civil rights movement. Gross. On top of that, somehow they take, they lump together these people who are, you know, at the cutting edge of critical race theory, who are doing anti-racism work and all that. Mm-hmm. And somehow they lump them in with, quote, the 19th century apologists for slavery. That is insane. Somehow that, yeah, exactly. And I don't exactly know how they're doing this, but basically, and without saying it, this executive order is fueled by what is perceived to be attacks on white men in the country. So basically their argument is saying that anti-racism type of workshops and training materials are arguing that white men are inherently racist and that the U.S. is inherently racist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the argument that is kind of embedded in this is that if you make the claim that the U.S. is inherently racist, mm-hmm. which it is, mm-hmm. yes. if you were to make that claim, fact, yes, historically and in every kind of empirical way, it's fact, if you were to make that claim or have that as part of your training, you are being quote unquote divisive and you need to stop. You can't, you can't use that training material if you're a federal contractor. This or- is so, this is like, this is the same, like, no, if you, if like, calling this, this makes you racist. Like you saying that this is racist, you're actually the racist. Like this is just like, it's peak gaslighting. It is. It is. And not only that, but it shrouds itself in this like righteous, we are a righteous. Language. Yeah, we're 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 a country that doesn't you know base these things on race. We're all about merit. Anyways, so the chilling thing about this is that it something like this now is like in my workplace. We have to somehow deal with it. We do have um, we do have like training programs that are about diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, implicit bias and we had to do a review of all those things and yes like conclude that these things are not divisive or whatever and it's really chilling because you know federal contracts are now tied to this and there's this all of a sudden this leverage which you know is supposed to not be there Mm -hmm. and this is straight up fascist yeah 
It is. It's really chilling. You know, the, this this group is always talking about freedom of speech or whatever, mm-hmm. right? These are deeply studied and articulated concepts mm-hmm. that, and I'm talking about critical race here, that educates people on the way these systems work and equips people to combat racism. Mm-hmm. Instead, this EO reads into it what they want to read into it, which is that this stuff is inherently a war against white men in particular. Right, right. And without saying as much, is trying to intimidate and trying to censor yeah. this kind of work. And it's really chilling. Yeah. So, yeah, that's been top of mind for me in, in the sense that I can't believe I have to deal with this at work. It reminds me, do you remember like maybe 10, maybe even 15 years ago at this point when Jan Brewer was governor of Arizona, like their state legislature outlawed ethnic studies classes because they made people feel negatively about white people? I didn't know that was Jan Brewer's Arizona, actually. Yeah, I actually, I don't know what has happened with that law since then. I, I have no reason to think it's not in place still, but... It feels to me like this is a play to his base and maybe this is giving them too much credit, but it feels to me like they do not actually intend to like for this to be like a longstanding thing. They're just doing it to like rile up the people that love them and they, you know, will deal with the lawsuits and whatever. Like, but this is just like one of his gestures to his base that is like not going to last for the long term, which doesn't make it any better to be fair, you know, to be clear. I'm not like saying that you shouldn't worry about it because it is deeply chilling, but like, I am just so disgusted by like the motivations of something like this and like enacting policy for the purpose of like pandering for a re- for an election. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, that's kind of how I've dealt with most things, you know, that I just see as just red meat without much substance and EO, you know, can just as easily be reversed. But the fact that it like seeped into our work and, and and I don't see them really, I don't know of any legislation, maybe I don't know, and I'm sure there will be efforts post-election if it, it goes to it that challenges this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was certainly written with, with like legal liability in mind, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't mm-hmm. name like, it gives examples of quote unquote reverse racism. Uh-huh. Um, but it's basically it's a policy not to promote race or sex stereotyping or scapegoating. That's mm. the new thing, scapegoating, right? Yeah. Um and those things are just not well defined. And so you can just see them continuing on with this and then using this as a pretext to, you know, control grant funding. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean if you're ahead of an institution like mine, you know, like you're going to all of a sudden be like, hey, why don't we just kind of, you know, like tone down, you know, this train, this part of the training that names white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just get rid of that part and we'll be in compliance, right? Yeah. That temptation to do that is just so there. Yeah. And then you're really, that's the chilling part for me. Is that yeah. like, if this thing does stand and it's written in a way I feel like where they could even get away with it, right? Mm-hmm. In a court of law. Like what what like who's gonna be the ones that are out there like risking grant funding to, you know, maybe tone down a little bit of a training manual. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
truly the only governing policy at this point is like whatever he thinks is going to improve his election chances and like regardless of like how many people it pisses off and like how much no care for the cost otherwise uh because it would all be justified if he gets reelected so yeah yeah so yeah i mean that this top of mind kind of segues and thematically into what we want to talk about today we mentioned at the top that this is our last recording before the 2020 november 3rd election we don't know yet if we'll know who won the election by the time we record our next episode hopefully we will and it's not this drawn out process but given the state of mail-in voting this year and the pandemic uh we're not sure if we're going to know like we typically do on the day or the night of the election. But given that it's the last recording before the actual election, we thought it would be a good opportunity to sort of take stock, um, take a break, take a deep breath, and maybe just reflect on the past four years and maybe just share some thoughts on where we are today as a country. I think this executive order is pretty emblematic of where we are. It's just something that was not even within the realm of what we thought was even possible. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, um, we just want to think about the last four years uh, living under Trump. I think we mentioned that I can't believe we've gotten here somehow. Um, and we really have a chance now. Uh, and this, this is the thing that we've been kind of, you know, you know, like when we lay our heads at night, like we had the comfort of saying, well, at least we have 2020 to, to, to get this right this time. Right. So before we get into our thoughts on 2020 and where we are right now, I just wanted to turn back the clock a little bit to 2016 and maybe we can start there, Liz. Um, what were, I guess, do you remember what some of your thoughts were going into the election uh, this is the election in 2016 between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Um, and of course, what were what do you remember were some of your immediate reactions um, to the results? I remember thinking it was in the bag for Hillary. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe because I listened to a lot of Keeping It 1600, which is now Pod Save <laughs> America. But those dudes seemed very confident that she was going to win And I was like, well, they must know what they're talking about because they're all like political insiders. And like every poll suggested that she was going to win. Right. And so then when the returns were coming in and I lived on the West Coast at the time. So like I was very awake still when, you know, Florida came in like slowly 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 watching after dinner all of these states come in and looking at that needle on the new york times homepage with like how like the probability that everyone was going to win and like looking like trump 95 percent and just being like how is this possible Hmm. um and you know finally at 10 or 11 just being like I'm going to go take a shower and then standing in the shower and then just like being like, this is happening. Yeah. This is happening. I didn't have like a panic attack. I didn't burst into tears. It was just like this like dark 
foreboding acceptance of like how terrible the next four years were going to be. Um, how about you? What was your experience? In the lead up to the election, I was living in South Africa, mm-hmm. watching from a distance. And, you know, I was sort of the, you know, what's funny is that people over there don't know keeping it 1600, uh-huh. of course. <laughs> and so I could easily just pass off their insights as my own. Nice. Casual plagiarism. Very nice. Sorry, guys, but <laughs> um, you shouldn't be in election prediction business anyways. Yeah. So I don't feel so bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was kind of like the election sage in South Africa, I guess, among the people who were like, what's going on? Who is this guy? And to be fair, I think they kind of saw it coming better than I did. And mm-hmm. I had to assure them that this wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that is a context in which they lived under apartheid. Mm-hmm. Um, they knew what that was like. They they know the tactics of authoritarians. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that stuff was very familiar to them and they know how powerful it is. And yeah. at the time, you know, I, I I fully bought into this idea that something like that couldn't happen in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. This is something that happened to other countries with, you know, um, more vulnerable populations that are looking for some kind of semblance of stability, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I just didn't think something like, you know, things were generally going okay um, in 2016 in terms of the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't like, you know, anything major like that we're at the height of a war or something. Yeah. So I just, you know, I thought like you, we had it in the bag. So I come back uh, to the States uh, before the election. Um, and at the time I joined a church for a short time. Uh, this isn't a church that I grew up with or anything. It was just on an invitation to a friend. And I joined a small group there and they're just Asian American evangelical Christians, you know, mm-hmm. and they were all very curious as to what I thought about what was going on. They could not vote for Trump for sure. They knew that, mm-hmm. but they also couldn't vote for Hillary because of the abortion thing. So right. they were like, they were asking me what I was going to do. Like how as a Christian, can you vote Democrat? Like that was an earnest and genuine qu- question that they were asking. Um, and I, Realized, you know, like, you know, you go, you go from having like very sharp, critical discussions in South Africa to going to how you could, how are you supposed to explain to people how you can vote Democrat? Yeah, as a Christian, it feels like right? trying to explain like why the sky is blue or the sun is hot. Right. It's just impossible to discuss. I was very frustrated, suffice it to say. So when, when it happened, I was in the library trying to do my literature review for my dissertation. Mm-hmm. And I remember just losing, of course, like two or three days of work yes, because of course. I couldn't focus. I was despondent. I couldn't sleep, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, to the credit of that small group, they were, I have to say, just as despondent, even though they didn't. I know that some of them didn't vote because they just couldn't figure out how to navigate those two things. Who did the, I mean, did any of them vote for Hillary? I I don't know if anyone did, but I know for a fact that some of them just decided to sit it out. God. And I think the explanation was if they were in a swing state, they would they would have gone and voted for Hillary. But given that they had the luxury of being in a, you know a solidly blue state, mm-hmm. they felt like they could sit it out based on their convictions over abortion. God, that is So, yeah, that was it was shock. And I remember that 
that night where we all kind of got together and we were talking. And incidentally, for me, that was the last time I was in a church small group. Mm. And I think we'll get into that a little bit as to why. Yeah. Um, but at the time, it did feel helpful to have people. There was one Trump voter in that group, like a very enthusiastic Trump voter, but mm-hmm. thankfully he didn't come to that meeting. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, oh, thank God that guy's not here because they were despondent. They knew, even though they were kind of like sucked into this framework, mm-hmm. that that something really horrible had happened. Mm. So yeah, obviously, that's the lowest I've ever felt in terms of the country, basically. Yeah. I have to ask, do you know how that guy is voting this time? He's on my Facebook wall. Occasionally, he posts something that's not necessarily pro-Trump, but is very clearly like, like he he's, the, I mean, for him, and I had a chance to talk to him in the lead up to the election. Mm-hmm. He is someone who thinks and knows very clearly who Trump is. Like mm-hmm. he's not under no illusion that this guy is anything good, right? Mm-hmm. But for him, he sees America as a, like, it's it's embroiled in a culture war. Mm, God. And, okay. And evangelical Christians are losing the culture war. <sighs> okay. And liberals and basically heathens are basically erasing God and church from America. Yeah. He sees the he sees this person as strong enough to fight against the hated liberals. I got you. So I think you already started alluding to this and what you just said, but I'm curious to know how the last four years have changed you. You know, I had some time to reflect on this question, and I think it's changed me at a very fundamental level. Mm. I found myself using they when it comes to Americans Mm. more often. Mm -hmm. It used to be that I was very much sensitive to anybody who would try to question the legitimacy of my American citizenship, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, especially as an Asian American. Mm-hmm. So I would like lean deeply into this idea that like I am a citizen, but I found myself just naturally rhetorically talking about Americans as they mm-hmm. rather than we. Mm-hmm. There is, I think there is a growing feeling for sure that there is a group of Americans in this country who see themselves as true Americans Mm -hmm. and others as that they're tolerating or that they're, they're guests of this country Mm -hmm. and sort of that separation has happened in my mind anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, I do feel more like a guest in this country than I did before. Mm. Like you've internalized that distinction. And I have to be careful here because it's not in the way where not in the not in, in not in the way of being like I'm not American, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But in the way of like making these lines crystal clear that mm. there clearly are people in this country that don't want me here. Mm, I see. I got and you. And like I got being you. much more clear eyed about that. Yeah. Yes. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. And so there is this like they and we kind of separation that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. So that's one big thing. Another thing is my relationship, I think, with the Christian community has changed mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. I mentioned before that that small group was the last time I was in community with 
a theologically conservative group. Mm-hmm. And I can talk at length about why that is, but I think if your theology is getting in the way of you just very clearly seeing that this guy is wrong mm-hmm. and evil in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. then your theology is not something I want to be a part of yeah. anymore. Yeah, You owe me an apology. <laughs> yeah. And you have a lot of work to do if you want to be in relationship with me. Mm. And it's it's not so different than the whole we versus they in the America discussion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I find myself saying to myself, or I, I, I found myself saying, I don't know if I'll ever be able to forgive this country mm. for what they did in 2016 mm. and what it's become. Yeah. Those are, I think, pretty profound changes. Yeah. I think I grew up a lot as a, like a political citizen. Mm-hmm. I've become, I lost a lot of that naive idealism mm-hmm. and I've become much more tactics oriented mm. and more thoughtful in a lot of ways about how institutions work, how culture shifts mm-hmm. um, and these kinds of things. But I, I think those are more on a second order of change. I think more fundamentally it's, if I can sum it up, I think it's like how I relate to fellow citizens, but mm-hmm. also fellow Christians who yeah. a lot of whom were either supporting Trump or were making these false equivalencies between yeah. Trump and the left yeah. or whatever. What about you? Is that is that something similar for you in the way that you've changed? I'm curious about how things have changed for you. I mean, there's like the surface level changes, right? Like how numb I have become to political scandal because we have like literally a new one every day. Um, We have how much my own natural cynicism has gets confirmed on a, on a day-to-day basis and how much my imagination for how terrible things can be has been expanded because we had no idea how bad it mm-hmm. could get, right? And we were so upset on election night, right? But we had no idea that we actually should have been way more upset. We did not realize how upset we should have been because we did not know how bad it could get. But that's all the surface stuff, right? And so if we go like one level beneath that, I feel like it made me realize that democracy is so fragile because up until that time, like with the exception of Mitch McConnell blocking Merrick Garland, which was no nothing, you know, nothing to sneeze at, I really took for granted that our norms and institutions were robust and would continue to operate as such. But and I did not realize that um, everything could crumble, and that when you don't have good faith actors, everything can crumble. And then when you have actors who are actively attacking our institutions, like the free press. Um, that the consequences of that could be devastating and will likely be devastating for decades to come. Like people's mistrust of the media right now will haunt us for decades, I think. So that's the second level, just realizing that like democracy is not something that we can take for granted, even in the oldest democracy in the world, and that it has to be actively defended and fought for. Um that was that was new. That's been a new realization of the last four years. Um, but then if we go even deeper than that, I feel like the last four years have taught me that 
they've made very clear that politics are a reflection of values. So I no longer live in a world in which, you know, we just don't talk about politics because it's not polite. Like if your politics are in that camp, I have no interest in engaging you because mm. your politics are a reflection of values that I find abhorrent. Mm. Um, so yeah, like you said, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in a relationship and I'm also not interested in trying to, to have a conversation with you, frankly, like, because I think my energy is better spent doing what I have been doing, which is facilitating spaces for progressive Asian American Christians. I think that's what I'm meant to be doing in this conversation. And I, I, I cannot have a good faith conversation with somebody who does who thinks that things like rights for women and queer people and people of color are like up for debate. I will not have those conversations. And then related to that, I was already pretty done with evangelicalism before all of this, but like mm. this has really been the nail in the coffin. Like I used mm. to think that evangelicalism had some redeeming qualities like community and belonging whatever. I I no longer I no longer do. Yeah, I wish they knew exactly how much damage that this actually did. Because if you're an evangelical, right? Like, what what is your your obsession? Is what like to make sure what the evangelical kingdom expands? You know, that more people become Christian. I guess. Mm -hmm. But this this has done more damage than anything possibly could have ever. Right. Ever. I think. There are Christians, there are evangelicals, I think, who lament that. Mm-hmm. But those are mostly the people who, like, don't support Trump. Right. I feel like the people who do, the evangelicals who do support Trump are just, like, they are so pleased about, like, their own victory, right? Like, this, like, perceived moral victory, which, again, as you said, is so perverse because this is not a moral victory for anyone, So can I ask you then, how did it affect the way that you maybe understood the United States? I feel like before Obama, I really did feel, I I never would have articulated this, but I think at my core, I felt like I was a guest here and white people were being generous to allow me and people like me to be here that like we had to be in our best behavior because they could kick us out at any time. And I feel like the thing that changed for me when Obama became president was that I realized that no, I am as American as anyone else. And I deserve a seat at this table. I am as entitled to a seat at this table as anybody else. And then when Trump got elected, I feel like my thought was like, oh, some of you really hate that I have a seat at this table. Mm. Um, And that makes me, it doesn't make me want to give it up. I'm still sitting, but it just makes me like, frankly, like just flip the bird at anybody who thinks that I don't deserve to be here. It's interesting, this thing about, because I think we both kind of talked about this journey about the table, right? Mm -hmm. Whether Mm -hmm. we belong at the table, where we are. And being Asian American, when I was younger, I was always conscious of the fact that I had to fight for my seat at the table. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would bristle at any suggestion, like the question of like, oh, where are you from? You know, I would really bristle at that question because I felt like it was my job to 
assert my Americanness. And I really leaned into that Americanness, right? I, I was even like obsessed with like the textbook version of American history. You know, I was a real sucker for that stuff because I'm like, oh, this is my history, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So under Obama, I felt secure in being at the table. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't feel like it was, I, I thought that moment of like questioning whether I should be at the table or not was a thing of the past now. Okay, mm-hmm. we're all past that now. We all see that there's a person of color in the office, you know, like we're all, we're all like, we're a great multicultural country, right? Mm-hmm. I think what Trump's election did, I think what Trump's election did for me now is I'm sitting at the table and I'm questioning whether Americans, and again, I'm using that they language, Americans even deserve to have me at the table. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to that whole thing. like, I, you're right. Like, I don't want to expend my energy explaining shit to you about why this guy is bad. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're not even there, then we don't even have the basis to have a dialogue, really. Mm-hmm. It'd be a complete waste of my time and waste of my energy. You don't know it, but you're lucky that you have me at this table. Yeah. You know? yeah. And like this is such a grievous attack on what I think this country should be that it has made me like question whether I want to be here at all. Yeah. I totally understand the sentiment. Like maybe maybe they don't deserve to have me at this table. I think my concern about it is that if I were to leave the table, then they get what they want. And I am far too spiteful to give these people what they want. Yeah, like giving up citizenship and moving somewhere else is like kind of a thought experiment kind of thing. Sure. But it's more of this feeling, right? That mm-hmm. feeling of uh, have we have we moved past the, the point of redeemable? Mm, yes. Yes, totally, totally, totally. I completely – this question I totally relate to. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like – that answer is very clear for me for like the evangelical church. The evangelical mm-hmm. church, I think, cannot be redeemed. Right. But is America redeemable? That I think is an open question for me. Yes. Yes. Um, so maybe like to pivot to a more hopeful note, and Joe Biden does win the election. What do you want to see from him and his administration immediately? And what are your hopes for maybe uh, more medium to long term? The things I want to see immediately are like rolling back all of these bullshit executive orders, Mm -hmm. like the one that you mentioned up top, like the, you know, lawsuit against Yale for affirmative action, like all of the quick and dirty things that he can do to undo these, you know, Trump's policies immediately need to be done. Um, I am glad that he, I think he announced today that he would form a task force or a committee to examine um, expanding the court, which I thought was a very diplomatic answer (laughs) that appeases both sides. But um, obviously, I want him to expand the Supreme Court stat like before this SCOTUS season is over. Yeah, he's just got a ton to do. He's got like a ton of environmental stuff to like fix. We need to get back into like the Paris Climate Agreement. Like we got to get back into this. Like I don't know if we there's any chance of us getting back into like the Iran nuclear deal. Like I I just feel like he's got so much stuff to clean up. You know, he's got to appoint yeah. like a thousand. Em- I mean, he was going to like, you know, appoint new people anyway. But like there are just so many vacancies 
in this administration, like in in our government at the federal level right now that like he's got so many holes to fill. Um, But how about you? If we are so lucky to see a Joe Biden election, what do you hope happens? I mean, everything that you said, um, I think there needs to be a lot more attention to structural power, Mm. as we've referenced to in the the past, Um, because that's the game I think Republicans are playing because that's the Mm -hmm. only game they have, right? Yep, yep. So by structural power, I mean gerrymandering. um, Census. Census, campaign, finance. Mm, Oh, God, um, yeah, Citizens United. Right, all that stuff. It's like these structural things there, they, you know, it's it's kind of like um, scarcity breeds innovation. They've been innovating on how to leverage their, like, minority position for forever, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... You know, Biden, as you said, is an institutionalist, and maybe he's not one of these people who are inclined to do it. We need to put the pressure on. Like, yes. winning the election is not enough because something like this can happen. Trump has like twenty kids, right? Like, like seriously, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Like, one of his kids are going to run. It's like totally. this, like some perverse like dynasty. They're setting up franchises just like yes. they do, right? Yeah. Completely shitty, poorly run franchises. Exactly, right? And it's just going to keep coming up. And if it, if the name's not Trump, someone else is going to take the playbook. And so we have to be thinking long and we have to th- be thinking about structural power mm-hmm. and how to just, you know, not be afraid to exert some of this power, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know how you feel about this, but I would also want to see some prosecution. Oh, yeah. And I think that a lot of the anger that I've been holding in has been stemming from just a very broad injustice with a capital I, mm-hmm. right? There's just mm-hmm. so much that so many people have gotten away with. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it's not enough for them to just lose an election, right? That's mm-hmm. not nearly enough, right? There has to be a massive cultural reset. There has to, like the people who are emboldened have to be fringe players, made to be fringe players again, yeah, and there has to be justice done on the just these just blatant crimes and lies and these kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's why it's very smart that a lot of these federal investigations have gotten like state level attorneys general involved, because I think it could be very complicated if, say, a Biden administration is investigating his predecessor, but the Southern District of New York has no like there are no. I mean, obviously, Trump supporters will say that there's a conspiracy, but like they don't have they're not politically incentivized to do this, you know, in the same way that a Biden administration would be. So I am I am with you. Yeah. Send everyone to prison. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And that's the thing about structural power. It's like conspiracy theorists can have whatever they can say, whatever they want to say. But if we have the power to do it, then, you know, given that, of course, it's not just politically it's not politically driven. If the evidence of crimes are there, yeah, prosecute. Yeah, based on agreed. Those facts, agreed. Right? Agreed. Um, and I really appreciate what you said too. That like, I feel like your answer illustrates that like the work isn't done after November third, right? right? We get to, we can take a few days off or whenever it is we find out who won, whoever wins. Actually, we can take a few days off either to celebrate or to, I don't know, drink until we pass out. But then we have to keep going, right? Because we have like progressives, unfortunately, we we can't really ever stop keeping pressure on, right? Because we have to pressure 
the center left candidates towards the left. We need to be thinking about this as like not just something we, we are doing right now, but like this is part of our life now. Like activism is part of our life now, like calling senators and writing postcards and working at polls like this is our life now. These are not these are these are not we're not on some like political vacation or like it, we're not cramming for an exam. This is just how we live. Right. We, we can't forget what these last four years were like. Mm-hmm. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, let's not be let's not be like completely fatalistic. There were, of course, a lot of good things that happened over the last four years, you know, um, that, you know, a lot of people that have opposed the Trump administration have won victories yes. here and there. Yes. Um, we can't lose sight of, of that. In spite, in spite of, of right. Yes. Not because of, but in spite of um, these last four years. And but all of the political energy that that has accrued over these last four years, we need to learn how to harness it, channel it, and really direct um, and not be afraid to use it. You know, that's a common refrain for me. So, yeah. And I think like, um, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, we have like labor and miserable toil, like miserable toil is just our norm now, because obviously it will be a lot more fun and engaging to try to pressure a center left to the left than to try to like do anything against the current administration. But like, how refreshing would it be to be like, oh, you know, your plan to reduce child poverty, it doesn't go far enough. That sounds like way more energizing, exciting work than like protesting any of the shit that's happened in the last four years, you know? So yeah. we just got to keep working. It just depends on like the circumstances of it. Yeah. Well, good luck to you, Liz. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so lucky to live in one of four states where my vote actually matters. Yeah, yeah, it all falls on your head. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is a, a timely list. Um, m- most of it is uh, shaped by our pandemic um, stuckness where we are. Um, but these could also double actually as potential destinations in case Trump wins next in the, in two weeks, right? Places we might want to move. Um, oh, God. I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, so this week we're doing top five uh, dream travel destinations. I guess I'll start. Um, I've divided my list on like the things that people travel for, you know? Okay. So okay. I don't know how you travel, but sometimes I, I'm i craving a city vibe. Sometimes I travel for food, sometimes for nature, mm-hmm. sometimes okay. to be a tourist and see some sights. So I kind of divided it up that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll start with my number five. And my number five is, oddly enough, it's for hotel accommodations. Oh, wow. Okay. There is a hotel that I want to stay in in Valdal, Norway. Interesting. Yes. Did not uh, see that coming. It's called the Juvet Landscape Hotel. Okay. And I don't know if you've ever seen Ex Machina. I have not. It's starring your favorite Alicia Vikander. That's right. That's uh-huh. right. That's all you need to know. Uh, she is a, a robotic femme fatale. A hot robot. Very cool. Hot robot, indeed. <laughs> that is really the premise of the movie, actually, um, breaking it down. But basically, the setting is in this very secluded... The, the, the idea is that it's like this billionaire's, like eccentric billionaire's. He's like the... It's like, imagine the founder of Google, like a search Mm -hmm. algorithm. Mm -hmm. And he lives off in this, you know, he's so rich. He owns this like huge estate somewhere, secluded, a lot of, you know, waterfalls, you know, forests. And um, basically the entire movie is set at his quote unquote home. Mm. 
But this home is actually a hotel in Norway. You could actually stay there. And it is, I remember watching this movie and just being stunned by how beautiful this estate or this like thing was. It's like this modern home, but it's one of those homes that have like, like Florida ceiling windows that look into just nature, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. woods, running water, all that stuff, you know? And I was like, wow, that house is gorgeous. And then to find out that I could actually stay there makes me want to go all the way to Valdel which I have no idea where that is or even if I'm spelling it or pronouncing it correctly. But it is a hotel and I intend to one day check in. That's amazing. I did not even think about that. But yeah, I have, there are so many like interesting places to stay. Like the, the accommodations are the destination. Exactly. So that's my number five. Um, now my number four, sticking with the, not the accommodation theme, but the nature theme. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always wanted to go to Alaska. Oh, hey, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't have to go abroad. Maybe like see what Alaska is about. I'm sure there are like beautiful untouched wilderness out there. Um, I'm a more of a mountains rather than beach person. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just want clean air, um, clean water, and sort of untouched wilderness. Nice. It doesn't seem so far from California either. Just hop on Alaska Airlines and see what it's about for a weekend. I love that. My number three are, I guess, like buildings or slash architecture. Um, I'm not a big architecture buff, but I do know, like, I don't know the history or sort of like what I'm looking at, but I do find city landscapes and like architectural landscapes very fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I want something radically different. And I feel like the pagodas and the temples in Myanmar are some of like, I, you know, just looking at some of these pictures makes me being like, wow, Mm. is this the same planet? Mm. Um, And, um, and just seeing some of these like gorgeously ornate pagodas and um, the statues and the temples and all these kinds of things that I've just never really come across. Mm -hmm. Um, Southeast Asia is an area that I haven't really traveled around much in just a little bit. Um, So I haven't really seen architecture like that before. So I would love to, when all this is done, check it out. I love that. Um, my number three is um, I'm looking for like culture and interesting history, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of those seeds were planted when I uh, went to Tanzania um, earlier this year or sorry, last year. Um, within this last year, I went to um, Tanzania and Tanzania has this like incredible colonial history that I didn't know about. Like apparently the Germans were there. German colonialists were in Tanzania. Oh, interesting. I didn't even know there were German colonialists, um, which (laughs) makes sense, of course. Um, But they have this like incredible, they were like a way station just because of their port, their ports. So they have like a lot of Arabic influences. Um, There's like this German influence there. A lot of interesting things. So that got me thinking, I want to explore some other areas of culture and history that I'm not as familiar with. Mm -hmm. And one country that I've always meant to go when I was living around uh, there, I I lived in South Africa for a while, was Mozambique. And I never had a chance to go to Mozambique. But Mozambique is a African country that was colonized by the Portuguese, Mm -hmm. um, has a completely different culture and vibe there. Um, has supposed to have, have incredible food. Maputo is supposed to be a vibrant scene, a lot of culture, a lot of music, a lot of food. 
Um, and I really regret not going there when I had a chance. Um, mm-hmm. I opted for some other countries while I was there. But if I'm ever in that area again, I would love to go to Mozambique. Nice. And then my number one, um, I'm not a foodie, but sometimes I see these like chef's table episodes and it makes me actually want to go to these restaurants, like yeah. fly there just for the restaurant. Yes. And I feel like I wouldn't have any regrets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... This one was tough because there's so many food destinations that I want to try, mm-hmm. but I really, really want to go to Peru. That's nice. like, I think, takes the cake. Yeah. Nice. So, of course, Peru offers so much more than just food. It has um, all this indigenous culture that I want to explore and get to know more of, mm-hmm. um, everything pretty much. But uh, Peruvian cuisine is just, I love Peruvian cuisine. Mm. And um, I've just seen too many of these food food channel type things where people go there and look like they're having the best food ever. So nice. Peru has made it to the top of my list. I love that. And Peru's food history is so interesting because the Chinese arrived there and like were so formative in their food, which was so shocking to me to like move to LA and go to farmer's markets and see Peruvian food and see like fried rice that even like in Chinese, it's like Fen, and then it's called Chaofa. I'm like, this is mind-blowing bonkers exactly nice that was a great list that was a great varied list thank you thank you so many different places and so many different reasons to travel which i really appreciate because mine is only motivated by one thing Ooh, i want to know what that one thing is it's food yes the only thing i think about really and also because like a lot of our netflix viewing has been like travel food shows, like somebody feed Phil. And it's just, it feels almost pornographic, honestly, to like watch people like travel and eat and like eat off of each other's plates. We're just like, what is happening? It was just, it was bonkers, bonkers. And like knowing that you, we cannot travel and eat any of this stuff anytime in the near future, it was like beautiful and like torturous at the same time. So. <laughs> My number five is um, a little bit of a basic choice, uh-huh. but it is Santorini. Nice. It, seated in the Mediterranean, which is my favorite sea, my favorite body of water. I just want to see those white buildings with the big, round, bright blue roofs. I want to see them in person. I want to see like obscene, mind-blowing views all the time. And I want to be drowned in tomatoes and feta cheese and olive oil. Like, oh my gosh. All I want. I, we've talked about this, like the general superiority of Asian food over other kinds of food, but truly I could eat like tomatoes. I could eat those things like every, every day for the rest of my life and be happy. Oh, Mediterranean is definitely up there. Yeah, for sure. I'm on board with this. My number four is the Philippines. Ooh. Part because I just want to eat lumpia and ube and everything constantly. Um, I'm also very interested in islands. I feel like it would be gorgeous. And I have not spent any time in like Southeast Asia, the Pacific Islands. So I would really like to explore that. But I'm also, I think the Philippines is such an interesting place because it's been colonized so many times by so many different people, like different world powers. And so I'm very interested to see like the confluence of like, like native Filipino life plus Spanish influence, plus American influence, and like to see how all of those things live together. Hmm. 
because I like that's like like three different hugely different continental influences all at once. I just have no concept for what that could be like, right? So right. I would like to go and see what that's like. Nice. Um, my number three is Israel for that mm. same reason. So the food is supposed to be incredible. But again, it's like this confluence of religions and cultures all in one place um, that I just have no concept for what that looks like. And I'm also, I have no concept of what it's like to live in a place where the threat of violence is constant. Right. And I have heard that like, Yes, obviously there's like huge drawbacks to that, but there's also like this kind of like real like in the moment presentness. Like people just have to be present because like nothing is necessarily guaranteed in the future. Um that yeah. So I'm I'm very curious about what that's like. I've also observed anecdotally from everything I've seen that everyone in Israel, lots of attractive people in Israel. Um and I also want to float in the Dead Sea, which is touristy af but i don't care i would like to try that for myself um my number two is india which is a huge country i recognize so yes. to give some specifics i would really like to be there for holy with the throwing of the colors uh, i feel yeah. like that would be dope as hell very into color um i would like to see the taj mahal because it is an architectural wonder I would like to see the Indian Ocean, which I've never seen before. I just want to eat everything. The cuisine is so radically different from north to south, and I just want to eat my way through the entire thing. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, and my number one is Istanbul. So Istanbul, it exists at the crossroads of Europe and Asia, right? And you can see all of those influences in the architecture and the food and the culture. And mm. again, I'm very interested in experiencing that. It's right on the sea. It's like basically right on two seas. So everything, like the views look gorgeous. I want to see the Blue Mosque. I want to see the Hagia Sophia. And I just want to eat everything. That's pretty much it, Chris. I'm just motivated by food. I just want to see, I just want to eat well and see pretty things, which just feels like the complete opposite of how I live right now, yeah. where like everything I have to eat is like toilsome and like, because I have to cook it myself. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like none of it's interesting because we've been eating the same thing for like eight months. Um, and I'm constantly burdened with ch like having to care for children. So like a place like a new spot. Somebody else cook for me new things that are delicious. That's what I'm interested in right now. OK, <laughs> so my friend, that was delightful. Yes. What should we talk about next time? Well, we figure that next time we're either going to be elated or in the dumps one or the other and i think that we could either way use some inspiration so the next time we talk maybe what we can do is talk about our most inspirational figures who are still alive today i love that. so not historical so not historical but inspirational figures who are alive today that we can look to and look to for some hope yeah I love that because no matter where we are the day after the election, I think this will be a valuable exercise. Yeah, yeah. that's the idea. So nice. if you're all listening out there, good luck. Um, keep your head up and yeah, do what you can to, to get by. Yeah, right? take care of yourself. Yeah. Really take care of yourself. Give yourself lots of space. All right, this was fun. As always, talk to you.
Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>